Magic Numbers. This is episode number 83. When did that happen? And today we're going to talk about why top players win more. And this is uh, specifically focused on the uh, Lord of the Rings uh, set and the data from that set. But before we go in there, I would like to thank my sponsors, uh, mtgazon.com, who are uh, kind enough to sponsor the stream podcast and the YouTube channel. Um, and also give me a nice space to uh, write up some of the thoughts that I have about data uh, from their website. So if you're interested in reading those things with some very useful graphs, I try to always make at least a couple of articles every format that are universal. So you can go back to those, how to wheel, how to read signals, all that kind of stuff. Um, and this podcast is also sponsored by you uh, via the Patreon. And um, yeah, I'm happy to announce a new patron in Sam. Uh, so thank you, Sam, for being the uh, new pa newest patron. Um, and with that, you get a couple of perks. You get access to the slides. You get a uh, uh, possibility of asking question of the week. Uh, you get possibilities of uh, asking for a deep dive on the card. Depends on the tier. So uh, you can go to my Patreon again, Sherkovic and check that out. If you have some spare cash lying around, um, I'm, I'm quite happy to take it. Um, and before we move to the main topic, I always start with a preamble that allows me to warm up, you know, streaming be hard, going straight from not talking and, and, and being in Excel for like two hours before the show into uh, talking about it is, is a hard transition. So I try to make this warm myself up. Pro tip if you are interested in content creation. And today, uh, the preamble is that there is a big difference between forcing and preference. And actually, you know, uh, because I'm that kind of a content creator, I highly recommend you um, the um, Art of Draft podcast from uh, Ham TV and Just Lola Man. They had a whole episode on talking about the difference between forcing and preference. Uh, it's very interesting to, this, to, to see those majestic limited brains um, talking about this topic. Uh, but there is this stigma. Oh, hi, Ham, <laughs> in the chat. Uh, there's big stigma about forcing that, I don't know, comes maybe from people who were raised on the Ben Starks uh, drafting the Hardway article. And there is a lot of uh, people who are thinking, oh, well, if I go into the draft thinking, you know, I, I, I want to draft red, uh, that's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if red is the best color. You don't have to draft red, but if the opportunity presents itself, you should be ready for that because this is the best color. So. You should be assertive. And actually, when you look at the data that we're going to look today between the top players and the lower tier uh, players on 17 lands, one of the big things that strikes me there is the perseverance of the top players to try to stay in the two best colors in this format. Because this format is clearly color unbalanced. That doesn't mean it's bad, because balance or lack of it is not necessarily good. Uh, and I think that the bigger problems than color uh, imbalance in this format are slightly different. Um, for example, lack of super powerful bombs. And um, I might be talking about it um, uh, during, the, during the later slides. But if the colors are not balanced, you definitely want to end up on the good ones. And you only end up on the good ones if you have a high preference for those. Because they are so deep that you can get a decent deck, even if there are several people on your pod uh, drafting them. And the worst thing you can do is to try, you know, half-heartedly to draft uh, good colors and then um, basically uh, give up at certain point and switch to the bad colors because then you have the worst of two worlds of being in the worst colors, but at the same time uh, not having too many cards in them because you already sacrificed some high picks to get the um, to get the to get the cards from the good colors. Um, 
And yeah, we're not going to focus exactly on how to do it. I think that this is a topic for an episode when we have all the gameplay data. And right now I'm only basing everything on the data that is available via 17lands.com, uh, the official website. Um, but it's worth keeping in mind that just don't get pushed of the top colors if you think that you can uh, get the deck and um, uh, try to be more assertive and try to um, assert your dominance on the table rather than uh, being pushed out. And of course, it will not work every single time, but as we will see in the data, uh, the top players do it and they do it because also they evaluate cards very well. And um, this is the thing that you can easily learn. Like gameplay is difficult and gameplay requires years and years of practice, playing, um, discussing with, with other people, showing your place to others and then figuring out what went wrong, what went right. Uh, but card evaluation, especially with 17 lands, can be learned relatively quickly. This is the sort of, it should, at least in theory, um, uh, the data from Seven Lands should uh, level the playing field between people who play draft occasionally and people who grind draft every single day. Because normally it took weeks of playing the format for people to figure out which cards are good. You can make shortcuts and just uh, figure them out by from Seventeen Lands. And if you apply that knowledge correctly, which is, Basically, the whole topic of every single episode that I'm making is how to apply the knowledge of the data um, that you have correctly and not fall into traps of, I don't know, confirming what you want to be true or um, overstating certain things or lacking subtlety um, in, in, in looking at numbers. Then you should have actually a big boost because you don't have to play five drafts a day. You can play two drafts a week and still with a bit of uh, involvement in the data, you can, um, you can still uh, know almost as much as people that play dozens of drafts every week. All right. And with, done, with that done, we can move to uh, the patron question of the week, uh, which comes from Mercurio this time. And um, they are asking, if is there a way to link number of lands with a win rate to find the optimum? And this is a very hard question. And um, I think I'm slowly approaching um, an full episode on that, um, because I think that this format is a very good format to try to answer that question, because we have several things. One, uh, we have uh, Tempted by the Ring mechanic, um, which allows you to, if you reach level two of it, allows you to loot every turn that you attack with your ring bearer. And this is an amazing smoothing mechanic. So um, you basically can get to a number of lands that you want to have on the board, and then every single extra land you can loot away and, and, and get a different card. Um, so that's one thing. Um, then the second thing that there's in the format is uh, the land cyclers. And the land cyclers uh, are costing only one mana, which is actually quite cheap, especially that in this format there are not so many good one drops. Because there are no good one drops, uh, you can sacrifice turn number one to cycle a land. And because of that, you can potentially play decks that have 15 lands and a couple of land cyclers, maybe two, three. And uh, that sort of virtually makes your land count uh, to 17 or even 18. And actually, there is this conflict between, um, between looting that you get from the ring, because you want to loot away land, and having the land cyclers in your deck. Uh, because, um, um, because if you have land cyclers, you cannot cycle lands because you have the land cycler. So uh, instead of uh, cycling a land that you don't need anymore, you have a six six mana uh, casting cost creature. And that is is a conflict and it, it brings tensions into the deck. Um, so uh, it's going to be a great uh, episode to try to look at the interface of those when you have the full data with uh, which cards are in the deck and, and, and how many land cyclers are in the deck and how many lands and 
how did it um, come together and what were the results, especially when you have those large sample sizes. But before we go into that, because we don't have the data for that, we can answer several uh, things and that might direct you into the ways of thinking about it. I'm not giving too many prescriptions on the data set, but I'm going to give you some uh, information and use this information as you please. Um, I'm going to interpret the data and, 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 and show you how I understand partially those uh, interpretations. But obviously these things need to be tested. And you know, the more you test, the more I'll have um, uh, diverse data and the more diverse data I have, uh, well, the, the, the more likely that I will come with some uh, decent conclusions when I actually look at the data set. So first of all, to um, look at it, um, you need to look at how does the hands mover work? Because most of us play best of one and best of one is very different from normal magic uh, on paper. Uh, you have a very different distribution of um, uh, lands that you draw in your opening hand. And I got this 960,000 um, uh, uh, opening hands from, uh, from, uh, from 17 lands. This is for previous uh, formats. So this is March of the Machine. Um, and based on those things, I could calculate um, how many lands uh, in your opening hand do you have on average? I did it before for other formats and nothing changed since then. Um, it's basically because of the hands mover and how it operates, you basically get either two, three or four lands in your opening hand. And depending on how many lands you put in your deck between 15, 16, 17 and 18, because these are the numbers that have large enough sample sizes that I can convincingly, uh, convincingly measure it, um, not much changes into how many um, uh, free land hands do you have. It's roughly around 50, 55% uh, independently if you have 15 lands or, or 18 lands. What changes is how many two land hands do you have? And it changes, well, roughly linearly with um, an increase of the uh, land count. So you start like if you have 15 lands, 40% of your hands will be two landers. If you have uh, um, 16 lands, 30%. If you uh, have 17 lands, that will be 23%. And if you have 18 lands, only 16% of your hands will be two landers. And then that difference is reflected in um, how many four land hands will you have. So it's 7% when you have 15 lands, 12% when you have um, uh, 16, 20% uh, when you have 17, and 28% when you have um, 18 lands. So this is this is basically when you decide to put 16 lands, that's what you decide. You decide that I want to have more two land hands and, and fewer four land hands. And that's going to happen uh, when you when you put 16 lands in your hand. Uh, and importantly, you have almost no zero land hands. Uh, in the 1 million samples, I found roughly 16 no land hands. So they happen quite rarely. Um, and then you have very few six land hands that also happened maybe like not even 10 times uh, in the whole data set. And you know, if you go really low with lands, you will get those one landers. So if you have 50, 15 land decks, it will be two and a half percent of um, of your games will have um, will have one land hand. And if you have 17, that will be one every, once every 200 games, you will have a one lander. Uh, so not, everyone plays enough draft to see one one lander hand in the format, but they will happen. And the same with five landers, they, 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 they happen like 0.4% when you have 17 lands uh, and almost never when you have 15. So that's, that's one thing that you get. But when you put the land cyclers, they are not counted as lands. So they are not a part of the hands moving system. 
And what it basically means is that you have a hybrid kind of deck where part of your lands are smooth and part of your lands are not smooth. Uh, what does it mean is that the more land cyclers you put in instead of the uh, lands, the more your distribution of, um, uh, of lands in your hand will look like in a best of three. If you would have, I know it's theoretically impossible, uh, uh, but if you would have only land cyclers, I know you don't have lands then, but that, that would mean that you basically best, uh, the, maybe there would be something else. Maybe there would be like um, spell lands that count as spells and not as lands. And they are lands on the other side, but uh, this mover doesn't see it. If you put only those um, spell lands in your deck, then you basically will have a um, the same as in best of three, but you will be playing best of one. And of course, this mover in best of one is there for a reason. It's there to ensure that you uh, are not going to be completely ruined uh, in this one game that you have against the opponent by uh, by drawing a zero lander and then another one lander and you moving into five. Um, so this is the risk of putting uh, those land cyclers. And what does it have as an impact on um, on the distribution of those hands? Is first of all, you see fewer uh, of the hands that have uh, three lands. It's if you have seventeen lands, it's fifty six percent. If you have uh, eighteen lands, it's fifty five percent. If you put fifteen lands and two land cyclers, um, you will have forty eight percent of the hands when you have three lands or land cyclers in your opening hand. And if you have um, um, three land cyclers, it will be 45, 46%. So it's like eight percentage points lower. Where does this difference disappear? Uh, well, first of all, if you have uh, 15 plus two, so technically similar as 17 lands, you will have more two land hands. Uh, it's 23% when you have 17 lands, and it's 27 and a half when you have 15 lands and two land cyclers. Uh, if you have 15 lands and three land cyclers, you will have more of those four land hands. Uh, so you have uh, um, 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 you have 20% of those in, when you have 17 lands, you have 26% of those when you have 15 uh, lands and three land cyclers. And what you will really see as an increase is the number of card uh, hands with five lands and or land cyclers. This never almost never happens when you have 17 lands, 0.4%. Rarely happens when you have 18 lands. It happens only in 0.7% of cases. But if you have uh, 15 lands and three land cyclers, 5% of your hands will be those five land hands. And 2.6% um, when you have 15 lands and two land cyclers. Um, and there will also be an increase of how often you get those one land hands. Um, it will happen uh, roughly 1.4% uh, versus 0.5%. And that has something to do uh, with the fact that 2.5% of your um, opening hands when you have 15 lands are going to be, um, are going to be uh, one landers. So that's much higher than when you have 17 lands. And 1.4 because 1.1 percentage points of that disappears because you will draw one land, but you will also draw a land cycler, which will be your sort of second land in that situation. Whew. Um, DTEC is asking a question, do MDFC lands count as lands for the shuffler? Uh, it's not relevant here, but curious. Uh, according to the data analysis that we did during the time uh, of Zendikar Rising, they don't count as lands, they count as spells. And that might be relevant for people that play Constructed and, um, and play uh, some sort of uh, MDFCs in their deck. And that, of course, exception for that were pathways, which are lands on both sides, so uh, yeah. Um, Urbivore says, smaller increase for one land hands than for five um, land hands, though. Right? Right. 
because uh, the increase in one land hands is related to the fact that when you have 15 lands, you will have more hands that have one land. Um, and that's actually decreased from what you would have normally with 15 because of the land cyclers. Well, this increase is that because this happens when you have three lands and two land cyclers or four lands, which is a relatively common scenario and you draw a land cycler on top of that. So um, yeah, and that's what's happening there. So just to give you an impression of that, when you have 15 lands and two land cyclers, 32% of your uh, starting hands will have at least one land cycler. And when you have three land cyclers, that means 45% of your opening hands will have a land cycler in it. So it's not something that happens rarely. It will be relatively frequent because the same hand smoother that smooth your hands also makes sure that you have a slightly higher chance to draw the, the spell weirdly uh, in your hand because um, you will only have this very um, truncated distribution of, um, of how many lands you draw because of the hand smoother. Uh, and because of that, you will have those high numbers of how often you get the land cycler, uh, at least one land cycler in your hand. Um, and the important part to know is that you will get land cyclers in the hands where you already have multiple lands. Like you see that you, you one lenders, you will never get uh, one lenders with land cyclers because you get so few uh, zero, um, uh, zero land hands. Uh, and you would have to draw a zero land hand and smoother doesn't allow for that. So you will never happen that you have like one, the only thing in your hand is the land cycler, which you know might happen if you play best of three. Um, it's only like very small fraction of two lender hands that you got one land and a land cycler. Again, this is because um, you will get so few hands that have only one land. Um, and then it, you, know, you will frequently have uh, three land hands where you have two lands and a land cycler or you know, one land and two land cyclers, that, that's going to be a rare scenario. Um, but when you look at the four land hands, majority of those will contain um, at least one land cycler. And almost all of the five um, land hands will get a, a land cycler. Uh, yeah, but that's the whole point. Funderwunk so is, is making the uh, question. I think that those stats are a little confusing because if you have four lands and two land cyclers, those are essentially spells and not lands at that point. Yes, that's exactly the whole point. Um, um, so you will draw land cyclers disproportionately uh, in the hands where you already have lands. Yes, that's that's the whole case. Uh, those percentages on the screen uh, are the same percentages that you see here, the distribution of the hands, only I split each of those bars into how many of those hands are only lands and how many of those hands are lands and a land cycler. So if you have 54.8% of the uh, hands when you have 18, oh, sorry, maybe uh, 18 lands is a bad example. 48% of the hands that have three uh, lands or land cyclers when you have 15 lands and two land cyclers, um, you split that 48.1 into 34.2 and 13.8 plus whatever rounding up um, and you add them up and that's exactly your 48.1. Um, so you can see that within those 48%, roughly quarter is um, hands with that have a land cycler. Yeah, these, each of those bars chopped into pieces exactly, that's what it is. So yeah, I mean, the, the five land hands will essentially only be the hands that have a land cycler. And it's good because those land cyclers are expensive. So if you have already four lands and you have a land cycler, you don't need to use it. But in some rare situations, when you get uh, like, three lands and a land cycle, two lands and a land cycler, then you might want to use the land cycler. 
And because of that distribution, um, you sort of will have that land cycling creature or spell um, as a useful spell half of the time and as a necess necess necessity uh, cycling the other half of the time. And I think that this is the optimal kind of situation because you don't want to have most of those creatures as a spell in your deck because they are not that great spells. If my, I, I want more from my six drops um, uh, than just being, you know, those like, you know, Oliphant. Um, so I wouldn't put them in my deck if they did not have that land typing most of the time. I don't, at least I hope I wouldn't have to. Uh, but if they are 50% a land and 50% a creature, I love them because uh, that means that I can have increased spell density in my deck but at the same time, um, I'm not gambling completely on, on on not drawing my lands because they have that emergency kind of bailout option. When I draw, um, especially the situation when I draw two lands and the land cycler, for me, it's almost a default heuristic that I'm going to cycle that uh, thing on the first turn. And then I have my three land hand. But if I draw three lands and the land cycler, then I probably am going to think about keeping it unless I'm color screwed or something. So, uh, you know, uh, obviously apply apply caution. And it's the same the same graph uh, looking at 15 plus 3, and you see it's even even a stronger distribution. So if you have three land cyclers, like a lot of the time, you will have uh, several of those. And often you will have a situation when you have, um, like when you look at this here, uh, you have um, four, 20, 21% of your hands will be hands with four lands slash land cyclers in your opening hand. And some part of it is going to be two lands and two land cyclers when you can uh, basically cycle the first land cycler, the one that maybe gives you the right mana, and then keep the other one uh, for casting it later. And um, uh, and by that, you basically do exactly what I said before, this 50-50 split when half of the times they are land, half of the times they are uh, spells. And of course, I don't have exact maths on what that ratio should be to be uh, to be the most useful, and maybe that ratio varies uh, between um, uh, between uh, different land cyclers. Uh, and obviously, my cat came and starts attacking me on the side, as he usually does. I don't know why. Uh, only when I stream, never does it uh, when I do anything else. Only when I stream, just comes and starts biting me in the elbow, which is great. Um, that he's still so uh, uh, lively at his uh, ancient fourteen years old age. Um, but yeah. Long story short, um, putting um, those land cyclers is beneficial, but I think it's not beneficial in every single uh, deck that you have, but um, it will be particularly beneficial in one type of deck. Um, so not every deck will be good to play 15 lands and two land cyclers, because one of the things, and I showed that in the previous graph, is that you have those uh, more hands when you have two lands or land cyclers in your opening hand. And not every deck, likes to start their opening hand with two lands because uh, it creates a risk for you to uh, be stuck on those two lands. Because of course, after the opening hand, no smoothing applies. You will just draw random cards. You might draw three or four uh, spells in a row and then you're in a pickle. Um, so um, that's the risk that you're taking by putting those land cyclers instead of lands. Uh, but I think it is potentially good in decks with a U-shaped mana curve. And U-shaped mana curve means that you are really heavy on the two drops. Uh, you don't have that much of the middle ground, especially like not many four drops. And then you have like a big top end of six mana cards um, uh, at the top end. Um, and this is good for this deck in one particular situation because decks with cyclers 
naturally will have a lot of six drop because the cyclers are six drops already. And then when you you can top them up um, uh, with 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 some other like uh, expensive powerful creatures, uh, because obviously you will have um, more hands when you get those five lands. So even if you have to cycle your land cycler, even still then to get into six mana, uh, but you drop Shellob as a, as a reward, that's probably a decent thing. And you can play this kind of um, game plan when you have uh, two drops everywhere. Uh, you go aggressively. But the problem with the aggressive decks is that they run out of steam sometimes. And that's where those six drops uh, come into play. You basically run out of steam a bit. And then you play Oliphant. And all of a sudden, you have new attacks because, um, because you got a bit of flood in your deck. But you won't get too much flood because you only play 15 lands and, uh, and, and two land cyclers. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, playing this 15 plus two land cycler strategy might not be that great when you have a bunch of four drops because um, in this situation, you might be uh, stuck on two lands for a bit too long and then your uh, relevant spells um, uh, cannot be cast and, and, uh, and then you run into world of trouble. So I would say that apply it in the decks that independently if it's a perfect U-shaped curve uh, or maybe just a two drop heavy curve, I think I would want to have uh, like a bunch of my uh, two drops to um, um, to make sure that this strategy works because this is your insurance policy against those games when you're stuck on two lands, which will happen. Right, that covers the patron question of the week. Um, I hope Mercurio that you got um, that you got uh, uh, a question worth out of this answer, and we can move to the uh, main topic. But before I move to the main topic, um, uh, I wanted just to have a brief look at the evolution of the metagame. Um, I compared the um, the archetype win rate um, and play frequency across the uh, first few days before I did my last episode. So I did it on Thursday and the set was released on Tuesday. So we had like two days of data in that time. Um, and as you can see, in terms of the frequency of play, um, at 17 lands users, at least um, uh, level, uh, there was an increase in Ragdos. So Ragdos was a dominant archetype in the first few days, 22% um, of the games played. Now it's 26.4 within that second week. And there's not much change in uh, Demir. There's not there's zero change in Orzov. It's 13.6% as it was. Demir increased from 11 to 11.8. That can be easily attributed to variance. Is it increased? to 13.1% from 12.6. Again, easily attributable to variance. And uh, not much change also in Boros, 11.2 to 11.4. Um, and we see uh, drops in those uh, lower win rate archetypes. Azorius dropped by 0.7%. Gruul dropped by half percent. Uh, Selesnya dropped by like 1.8% ditch points. Um, and uh, Simic dropped by, by almost two percentage points and then Golgari dropped by 0.6. So clearly the 17 lens user decided, look, this is a Mardu slash Grixis format. We're just going to ramp up our drafting of those Mardu Grixis colors and we're going to ignore uh, everything else. Uh, and to some extent they did. Drops are not massive, but, uh, but you know, at least it's, um, at least it's something, um, something is there. Um, in terms of the win rates, um, Ragdos, despite being drafted more and being more contested, is still top archetype. It dropped from 60.4 to 59.7. That's not a big drop at all. So uh, despite being drafted at such high, such high frequency, it's still uh, the thing to beat. 
Um, and yeah, I think that that's going to stay until the end of the format that Rakdos is the best archetype and it's going to be best by quite a lot. Yeah, it's plus minus 2% in terms of uh, win rate, I think. So, um, but I think that most of the time those things are even even smaller differences. It's just, uh, um, I think, confidence levels. If you if you'd count stats, uh, probably you'll go plus, plus minus one. That would be the sort of range. That's the question from the chat about what is the degree of variance here. Um, and also, Orzov dropped by uh, roughly 1.6, 1.4 percentage points. Um, Boros dropped by one percentage point, uh, and Golgari dropped by one percentage point. Oh, and and Gruul dropped by one percentage point, despite being drafted less. So, um, I guess that other decks become more streamlined, and and Gruul didn't. Um, but for much of it, it stayed relatively stable. There is no difference in is it was was winning 56 percent, is winning 56 percent. Um, no much change in Demir was 55 and a half, is 55 and a half. Azorius stayed the same, bad, 51.7, is 51.7. There was a slight increase in Selesnya win rate uh, from 51.1 to 52%, uh, which is still not impressive, but at least it overtook Azorius uh, at the margin that is definitely not significant. And uh, Simic is still uh, uh, last, even though it increased by 0.8 percentage points. So. Uh, Actually, I put this graph not because it's super interesting because there was so much change. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting because there was so little change in, in, in those last um, uh, week. You would think that once people start figuring out proper decks, there will be a big, um, there will be a big change uh, in the win rates, but there is not. Again, this is all best of uh, one data. Um, right. Um, and in terms of cards that uh, gained or lost within the first week, um, the card that increased their, its game in hand win rate by the most is Dreadful as the Storm. That's the three mana combat trick uh, that changes the uh, base power and toughness of a creature to five five, uh, and then you get tempted by the ring. This one increased by 3.8 percentage points, so um, definitely people figured out how to do something with that particular card. I don't know exactly what, because I, I, I don't think I ever played it so far, but um, it's worth noting that this card is a mover up. A um, couple of other cards increased, but these are cards that are usually bad. Actually, Dreadful as the Storm, after that increase, has a solid mid-middle kind of, of, of the way uh, game and hand win rate. Um, other cards that improved, the Galadrim Bow, Galadrim Guide, uh, Nimrodil Watcher, that's the two one that gets plus one, plus oh, when, scry, when you scry. All those cards improved, but they were just very bad. Uh, Nimrodil Watcher, uh, Shire Scarecrow in, increased the O3 that um, can fix your mana. I think that uh, part of it is that uh, those multicolor decks became slightly better um, in, in week two because people realized which legends to use and which legends to skip. Um, it's still not great, but I mean, it improved. Uh, Hitlane hit Knots, that's one card that definitely uh, improved and jumped into average uh, card kind of tier. Um, uh, that, that got boosted by 2.1. Um, another two cards that are like potentially good in, in, in five color, four, four color archetypes, Inherited Envelope, uh, that's the mana rock that uh, the ring tempts you, and Wizard's Rockets, um, that's the one that you sack to get mana in any color combination. These both also increased by 2.1 percentage points. And then you have like Knights of Dol Amroth and Gimli's Axe, again, mediocre card. So really, the interesting part of that graph is Dreadful as a Storm, which increased by almost four percentage points, that's quite a lot. Um, so uh, it would be worth watching where are they played. I saw in the chat that uh, it's good in Demir. 
Um, Hithlane Knots, uh, that card is a decent card and should be treated as such, especially in the spell uh, kind of uh, controly decks. And then um, a bunch of five mana fixing increase in win rate. So uh, maybe maybe people are on the cusp of figuring out how to make those uh, multicolor decks. Uh, in terms of the decrease of the win rate, uh, there's always a card that, like, couple of for, for the couple of early days is 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 being moderately hyped. And I think that Fire of Orthanc, some I, I saw some content creation that was um, raving about playing multiple Fires of Orthanc. That's the land, land or artifact destruction and uh, also a falter effect that um, non-flying creatures cannot block. That thing had a decent 55% game in hand win rate in the first couple of days, and that dropped to 50%, which you, you may think that 50% is a good win rate, but it's not on 70 lands when the average user has a 56% win rate. So um, uh, that definitely dropped off. Uh, other uh, cards that uh, dropped off, um, Mordor Trebuchet that dropped even further, and I think that right now is like in competition for the worst black common. Um, and I know that some people love playing it. Um, so yeah, uh, take on board the fact that uh, the win rate of that card is at least not good. I assume that there are some good homes, but again, I think that um, people probably slightly too often think that their thing is a, a perfect uh, home for it. Um, uh, Mirror Mirror Guardian, that was a surprising like uh, top green common for the first days. It dropped slightly, but it's still in the decent range, the 4-2 that dies into uh, a ring tempting. Uh, then there's Morgul Knife Wound, the aura, black aura that um, uh, you put on a creature and then it basically gets minus 3, minus 0, and it pings the owner for 2 every turn unless they exile it. And that would have really high win rate in the first couple of days, and now it dropped and it's sort of medium, um, especially that it's in black, which is the best color. So it's back to where it's supposed to be. It's still probably the better version of that effect that we've seen in uh, recent years, but the better um, uh, is still not good enough because it gives opponent the choice of sacrificing a creature when the damage will be relevant and choice not to sacrifice if, if the uh, benefits of having that creature outweighs the drawbacks. Uh, what else? Dunedine Blade dropped off. Mirkwood Bats, that's another like combo with the Mordor Trebuchet that people are keen on, and those cards. Potentially, uh, the drop in the win rate is because uh, some of the top players decided never to play that thing again when in the first days where they were testing it, and some people stayed playing it that uh, didn't have such a high win rate. That might explain why those two cards uh, dropped more or less the same by two percentage points. Um, other cards rushed the room. Uh, I don't know if it had any win rate already, but um, apparently it did, and now it has even a lower one. Um, Snarling Work does the 3-4 three, three, Menace. Uh, that is a 4-4 four, four when you have an army or orc, whatever. One of the two conditions. I don't want to memorize every single condition when they are so close but different. Um, Nasty End, the sacrifice thing that draws you two cards or three if it was a legend, uh, that also dropped by 1.7 percentage points. And surrounded by orcs, uh, another card that is a big underperformer. Um, and I think that uh, top players did realize that this card is this sort of meh for mana for making amassing three and milling some cards is just not good enough on rake. Um, boom, boom, boom. Right. So now we can move to the actual topic with just um, you know forty minutes in or so. Um, which cards are valued by high by the top players? And uh, how I calculate those things is two ways. Um, one, this is the pick preference. So when you see the card, what percent of the time do you pick it? Um, and 
we're going to look at the differences between the top and the bottom and the middle tier players on how they um, have this pick preference. So uh, there will be some cards that top players just see them and take them. And, um, and maybe the players from the bottom tier don't. And there will be some cards that um, players from the top tier very rarely pick, but uh, people in the bottom tier of 17 lands uh, pick it more frequently. I mean, what those tiers mean, uh, it's basically they look at the win rate of the of, of, of the players from the last uh, three sets. So um, if you have like win rate of roughly 60% uh, in the two of the last three sets, you're going to be in the top player uh, echelon. Uh, the average win rate of the players from the bottom echelon is around 50%. So they are, I guess that the bottom tier on 70 lands is a good proxy for an average arena user. Um, um, and the middle players have roughly like 55% win rate or so. Um, but when you pick a card, it doesn't mean that you put it in your deck. So the second thing I'm looking at is on play preference. So um, um, what percentage of the time when, uh, when a player picked a card, do they put it in their deck? That required a lot of mathematics because I need to calculate how many games do people play on average with a card depending on its win rate, because of course it will very much differ. Uh, so to compare them, I need to calculate the basically prediction of how many games will you play with card X when it's in your deck based on its game, uh, games played win rate. That was fun. Um, so yeah, uh, we're going to be looking at this top, middle and bottom 17lands.com tiers of the players. Um, and we're going to look which cards are picked more or less aggressively and why, what is the difference in win rates of those cards. And, and, and maybe uh, at the end, I'm going to look at which cards do uh, top players have disproportionately more success uh, with than the bottom players. So we're going to look at the cards where the difference between the win rate, top players and bottom players are the biggest and smallest uh, for some cards to maybe speculate on why. <laughs> So first things first, uh, the pick preference. Um, and here is the difference between uh, the pick rate uh, between the top and the bottom players. They are all positive values, which means that uh, these are the cards that the top players pick more by percentage points. Uh, so Foray of Orcs um, is 23 percentage points more picked by the top players than the bottom players. Now, I don't give the numbers, but that can mean that either Bottom players pick 0% of the time and um, uh, top players pick it 23% of the time. Uh, or it can mean that um, um, uh, bottom players pick it 77% of the time and um, top players pick it 100% of the time. And of course, everything in between goes. Um, we're not going to look at those absolute values because it would maybe muddle this slide uh, a bit. But I mean, uh, you can sort of guess that Horn of Gondor is going to be highly picked. It's just, it's much highly picked by um, by the top players. And when we look at the list of the cards, the first three, around 23 to 20% pitch uh, points higher picked by the top players. Foray of Orcs, Fear Fire Foes, Aomer of the Riddermark, three quality red uncommons. And um, yeah, I think that um, top players quickly noticed the data and understood from the gameplay patterns that these are really strong um, uncommons, especially Fear Fire Foes and Elmer of the Ridder Mark. Uh, Foray of Orcs is slightly weaker, uh, still a very good card. Now, of course, this means that they will be disproportionately played by the top players, which means that the stats of those cards are also slightly uh, boosted by the fact that top players play it more, not only because the card is good. And this is one thing that you maybe have to think about when you look at the game and hand win rate. 
that not all cards are played equally by all groups of players, and and that will exacerbate the differences. So four of works, I'm sure, is good, uh, but its win rate is boosted by the fact that top players play way more than the bottom players do. So um, uh, probably, if you would normalize for that and you wanted to try to find what is the win rate of this card when you take all the arena users into account, Fear, uh, Foria Vorks would be slightly lower than it is in 17 lands users because those uh, top players are, are boosting it. And if you want to evaluate the card power in vacuum, again, it will be slightly elevated because it's disproportionately played by the top players. Um, then we have Horn of Gondor. Uh, this is one of the ironically cards that the bottom tier players have the highest win rate with. But I think that um, in this case, it's a sort of like a trap of um, maybe bottom tier players who I would guess are most of the time uh, more beginner players um, uh, that are still learning how to uh, draft and uh, their win rate is going to be better because they already did the first important step of using 17 lands. Um, uh, but of course, getting better takes time. And for them, when they read the Horn of Gondor, they think, you know what? This looks like a white red card because you need humans. And um, maybe the top tier level player um, will look at it and say, you know what? I have like four red humans in my black red deck and I have the, um, the two one that dies into an army that's also a human. And the card is busted when, you get, when it's gonna be given a couple of turns to operate. Um, so I'm going to jam it in my black red deck. And because of that, they will pick it more frequently because they don't treat it as a multicolor card. They treat it as a colorless card that of course will be better if you have some humans. So, you know, maybe don't play it when you have zero humans, but when you have some at least, um, uh, you can you can jam it in your deck and it's still good. Oh yeah, and especially with Rally, um, Rally the Hornburg being the best red commons, that, that definitely helps. Um, especially that you can attack with them uh, the same turn as they enter if you play it Rally and, and activate the horn. Uh, then we have Dunlade Crabane, Voracious Felbeast, Torment of Golem, so like a small black spell package. And Dunlade Crabane, um, again, you might look at this, oh, three mana, one, one flyer, but it's so much more than that. Um, that can lead to slight misevaluation of the card, how powerful it is. Maybe people evaluate it through the uh, perspective of a uh, preening champion and say, well, that's just worse preening champion. Potentially, I mean, yes, I guess it's worse preening champion. Uh, but the Crabane itself as a 1-1 flyer is an excellent ring bearer. So basically, opponent will have to waste the removal on the 1-1 flyer, and you still get the, um, uh, a mass 2 uh, tagged onto it. And of course, Preening Champion was an A-level card. Um, so um, yeah, it's okay as a common to be slightly worse than an A-level card. Um, and yes, as, as the chat suggests, the Dunlit Crabane, the non-flying part of it will frequently have uh, haste when you, instead of amassing from scratch, when you put the tokens on something that doesn't have summoning sickness and just like jam a 2-2 two -two or a 3-3 or a 4-4 three -three four -four in, into opponent uh, once you play it. Uh, Voracious Fell Beast, that also looks maybe a bit clunky. I definitely didn't give it like a B, B plus when I was uh, evaluating it for the set. So I can imagine how that uh, evaluation is um, missed because you know six mana four four flyer especially those that follow content uh, a lot very often you will hear ah oh, that card is a six mana four four flyer and that's not the rate that i want from a four four flyer 
And of course, it's partially true, but you also have to look at what the card does. And Voracious Felbeast does so much more uh, than the usual uh, six mana four four flyer. That is a very good card. Um, it's my you know like I really don't like the three two stat line on a three mana creature. Um, but I play Organ Hoarder happily, even though it costs four mana for the same stat line, because what it does is just so, so good um, that I'm, I'm super happy to um, to pay for the body. Because in the end, I'm not that interested in the body, I'm interested in the effect. And Voracious Thelmis is a great effect. Uh, and the body, you know, Furful Flyer is a really, really big thing in this format. Uh, then you have the Torment of Gollum. And then, again, I can totally understand why this card is underappreciated by the uh, bottom tier players. Uh, Two to creature that um, that does coercion uh, might not sound appealing, uh, but the card and the, the format aligns so well. It's really good against some of the red blue decks, especially the ones that um, plan on playing one big Gandalf sanction um, at certain stage. You can just uh, ruin that plan by playing Torment of Gollum. Uh, lots of small things. It will snipe like big creatures uh, and uh, pave your way to victory. Knowledge is important. Uh, and also top tier players are going to do way better with that kind of knowledge uh, than, um, than maybe bottom tier. So they will get additional boost from knowing how to play the card better. And we have Grishnak. Um, uh, that's the one one that amasses two and then steals something that is uh, power toughness uh, equal or less to the amassed army's power. And importantly, doesn't steal legends. I don't know how many times I tried to steal the ring better, but uh, nope. Rally at the Hornburg. Again, this doesn't look like the top red common when you look at the card list, but uh, because making two one ones may seem weak, but making two one ones that have haste is way better than making two one ones. So um, uh, there you go. Ranges Firebrand that also looks like, oh, it's a shock. It has Tempted by the Ring. Doesn't look great. Uh, it is a great card. Uh, that Tempted by the Ring is really amazing. It deals with some quite annoying early threats as well. Uh, and can go face in those decks that um, operate on spell synergy, especially when you have something like, what is it, Fiery Inscription, uh, the en Red Enchantment. Especially when you have that, you can go just go four into face for one mana, uh, make one of my creatures unblockable because I got tempted by the ring, and just jam slam and uh, finish the game like that. Um, also, everything with uh, tempted, well, lots of cards with tempted by the ring are going to be highly valued by uh, top players because tempted is a very powerful mechanic in this set. Um, then there's Nazgul. Uh, the card is just a minus level kind of quasi bomb, and and I think top players understand it very very quickly. Uh, what do we have else? Claim the precious golems bite, Mordor Master, Shadow Summoning, uh, and. Of those cards, every single thing is Rakdos, except for Shadow Summoning, which is uh, which is the uh, Ors of uh, White Black for making two 1-1 one, one, uh, top spirit tokens. A great card because it's super cheap on rate when you want to play them aggressively, and then you can do some shenanigans with sacrificing those tokens for some value. So these are the cards that um, top players uh, value super highly. When we go through the difference between top and mid-tier players, so between those players that have roughly 60% win rate and 56% and win rate, we see a bunch of the same cards. Aomer um, of the Riddermark, Torment of Gollum, Fearfire Foes, Fory of Orcs, Voracious Felbeast, Dunlith Crabane, Nazgul, Rally of the, at the Hornburg, Grishnak, Rangers Firebrand, Horn of Gondor, Claim the Precious. Here we also have Orcish Bowmasters, Sauron the Dark Lord, and um, uh, Palantir at Ortang. 
so exactly all the same cards except for three. Um, Palantir of Orthanc uh, uh, is a strange rare that does a lot of things and might seem confusingly bad, but actually is a good card. And again, top players uh, identify it very quickly. Uh, Orcish Bowmasters, I think also, even to someone at intermediate level, like um, like the mid-tier players, might look like it's not a bomb. It is a bomb. It is absolutely broken, and you can do so many things with that, especially in the format when drawing multiple cards in a turn is going to happen. Uh, and Orcish Bowmaster, Bowmaster, Bowmasters. It's, someone told me that it just sounds like Cory Bowmeister, and now I'm going to just call them Orcish Bowmeisters all the time. Um, it's a 1-1 one, one with flash that when it ETBs, amasses one um, and ping something for one. So like even like at the base level, like complete ceiling, you will be able to uh, make two 1-1s one, uh, at instant speed for two mana and ping for one. Um, and that's the absolute like uh, you, you can always go face if you, if, you, if you can't find the target that you can kill. Like best case scenarios, um, you play it in response to someone drawing two, three cards, uh, and then you end up with a one, one, uh, a four, four, and um, and pinging things for uh, for four damage as you choose. I played it in my pre-release and I cast it and in response to the draw spell and cast Shallow's ambush on the Bowmasters, and then they just uh, machine gunned half of the board. Uh, all of a sudden, and that's not like a. Once you have the bowmasters, getting Shalom's ambush is not difficult. So uh, those kind of situations will will happen. And all of a sudden, the game I was behind became a game I was heavily, heavily in front, and switched off my uh, opponent's uh, um, my opponent's uh, ring bearer because every time it attacks, it just dies to the ping or whatever. Um, and Sauron, uh, Dark Lord, I think that this is also like something that is relatively easy to splash and powerful enough to actually warrant that splash. Um, but what you see is that top players just pick those Rakdos cards much higher. It, whether you compare them to uh, the bottom tier players or to the mid tier players, they just pick a bunch of those really strong Rakdos cards higher. And this is the part where um, we go back to my preamble about drafting with preferences. Um, it's not forcing if those two colors are just so much better. You actively want to be in them because that increases your chance of winning. And also good cards are in those colors. So when you open the pack, the chance that the best card in the pack is going to be red and black is quite high. And top players realize it and they not decide to be cute and try to draft something weird like I did to tank my win rate and, and, and explore. Okay, I did it for science. But if you are interested in winning, uh, the best way of winning is uh, First, pick a black or a red card because that keeps you open to multiple archetypes that are just good. You can, you know, pick a red card and decide whether you're maybe Boros or maybe uh, maybe you're going to be blue red spells. Not as easy to pivot between those two, but okay, that's fine. Um, you can pick a black card and you can just go for like a controlling Demir deck, or maybe you can go for the black red or maybe black white, which is also a very good card combination. But if you do those first picks without like, you know, deciding before you start draft, oh yeah, I'm just going to be black, red because that's the best color because that's that's just not smart. But if you position yourself in such a way that you're more likely to end up in those colors, that's good. Uh, and top players clearly do that and they are winning. And, and, and you know, it would be maybe tautological um, if, 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 if those tiers would be only assigned based on this format, but to be in the top tier um, uh, uh, on 17 lands, 
you had to be consistently good across three um, formats. So it's not just uh, that those top players are good because they are drafting Ragdos um, in, in, in Lord of the Rings. They are good because they know exactly how much preference to put on each color. Um, now, I think that I'm lost. Where is, why, why doesn't, okay, yeah. My slide got stuck. Um, I think it's also interesting to see what is the difference between the mid and bottom tier players because um, hopefully a lot of the people that listen to my podcast or visit my streams are people who want to improve exactly being somewhere in the middle between those tiers. Um, because, you know, let's, let's face it, a uh, bunch of people have 60% win rate, but not everyone. Um, uh, we're still talking about the end of the tail of the distribution. Uh, and when we look at the comparison between the mid and bottom tier players, um, number one card that makes a difference is Foray of Orcs. And this tells me one thing. Um, Foray of Orcs is the card that uh, beginner players um, don't value highly. Uh, definitely not as highly as it uh, should be. Um, but I can totally imagine it. And I'm going to give you an anecdote uh, from when I was starting my limited uh, career. And 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 uh, that was very long ago. Um, so the card that I couldn't get, why it's so strong, was Necrotal. If you don't remember Necrotal, Necrotal is a uh, black, black, and two colorless, um, so four mana, for a 2-1 first strike creature where that kills a non-black creature on ETB. And I was thinking like, that's like four mana. That's that's quite a lot um, uh, for a 2-1, with, even with first strike. I mean, yeah, I get it. It kills something, but then I'm left with that body that is not that important. Well, that body just was made more important because it killed something that would normally block it. And of course, at that time, there was also graveyard shenanigans uh, with reanimating it and killing something else. Um, but it took me some time to understand that, uh, that those creatures are good. And I think it's a natural process. I don't want to speed up that natural process, but, um, you know, I, I want to draw attention to the, um, to the players that are in those lower tiers that four of orcs, like being a two, two, or maybe even bigger creature, um, uh, with partial haste that can kill something is an amazing deal. And, and, uh, that's definitely worth four mana. Um, because it seems like this card is undervalued. And the same thing goes for the Dunland Crabane, which is another card that is here different also between mid and bottom tiers. So it seems to me, if your win rate is around 56 on 17 lands, you understand that Dunland Crabane is good. Uh, you probably still slightly undervalue it, but you, but you pick it pick it uh, relatively highly. And same, Fear Fire Foes, Bitter Downfall, Grishnak, Voracious Fell Beast, Elmer of the Ridder Mark, we see the same collection of cards. And that tells me that these cards look to a beginner player like they are not as good as they are. Um, and I think that there's really good uh, reasons for that. One part of it is inability to evaluate the card on its own, but because all of those cards are in the same color, it's also that maybe those bottom tier players, they play in a way that does not optimize for win rate. So they... You know, they will pick a green rare in their first pack and they will just draft green when uh, a savvy top tier uh, 17 lens user is going to look at it and see that there is claim the precious in the same pack and ignore the green rare because they understand that drafting a green rare at that stage means that you sort of commit yourself to green and green is a bad color that you might not just see anything good anymore because it will just turn that in this pod there was not many uh, uh, not many tree folk for example so uh, because of that they will lose that game uh, that draft uh, pretty badly because they went for green too early rather than waiting for 
you know, reluctantly going into green um, in a situation when um, uh, when it was wildly open and good cards were being passed to you and you picked them speculatively at pick six, seven, eight, uh, rather than first picking them. So I think that this is the sort of mix that causes uh, those differences in, in, in picking. A, not being to evaluate those particular cards correctly, uh, but B, uh, not evaluating, not having enough preference for black and uh, red. Uh, and I think of interest, Horde of Gondor is also one of those cards that uh, mid players pick higher. Again, as I said, because they probably don't treat it as a multicolor uh, white and red card for the humans deck. Whew. Um, so what are the cards that the bottom tier players pick way, way more frequently than the top tier players? And number one is Mithril Code. That's the uh, three mana equipment that when it ETBs attaches, uh, it has flash and it uh, attaches to something, attaches itself to something uh, on ETB. And that's 28 percentage points less picked uh, by the top players. And I can see the appeal of Mithril Code to a beginning player. I said, well, it gives my creature indestructible. That must be busted. Uh, how are they going to win if my creature is not destructible? And I really love the uh, the spiel that uh, Corticals does every single time about it. Look, if they have an indestructible bomb, and I think that he made it uh, first time when it was talk about throwing the, the troll from, um, was it was Brother Wars or Dominaria United? One of those two. There was this 5-5 five, five troll that was hexproof, indestructible, whatever. And, 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 and the beginner players are always, how am I going to win against that card? Well, you can kill them first. Just ignore the the three three indestructible the five five indestructible troll, and do your job. And uh, they either will have to leave it for blocks, and in that way, is just uh, not threatening you with killing you, or they will race you. And if you win, you win. Um, so I think that this is what particularly makes Mithril Coat uh, being picked by those beginner players. They see this as like, okay, my creature is indestructible. I'm not going to win this. Um, I'm not going to lose this game. But it turns out that you can lose quite handily when you play Mithril Code in your decks, um, and that's why you probably shouldn't. But if you look further down the list, we have things like Saruman of Many Colors, the One Ring, Aragorn, the Uniter, Gandalf, the White, Elrond, Master of Healing, Fangorn, Tree Shepherd, Sting, the Glinting Dagger, the Watcher in the Water, Glamdring, One Ring to Rule Them All, Smeagol, Helpful Guide, Samwise Gamgee, Legolas, Master Archer, Storm of Saruman. All of those things are rare, and all of those things are not even just rare. They are very situational rare. Saluman of many colors, as the name suggests, of many colors. It's a three uh, mana uh, value uh, creature. Aragorn, four different colors in, in it. Gandalf, very niche ability um, on a four five flash, which basically should be treated as four five flash. Elrond, um, a really good card in, unfortunately, the weakest archetype of the format. Uh, Watcher in the Water, probably five mana do nothing for most of the game, unless you have very specific, specific build. Um, Fangorn Tree Shepherd, it's just a massive seven mana, four, ten vanilla creature. Uh, one Ring, good chance that if you build a deck badly around the One Ring, it will kill you, because this is not modern when every deck has to have the One Ring playset. You want to put it in some decks, but you really, really need to have uh, ways of sacrificing your One Ring. So, you know, I don't know if it's a, a good card to be first picking, and that's probably what you have to do to get it. And, you know, like all of those things are either very specific build-around cards or cards that are 
um, in the color combinations that are not so good. Uh, when you look at the differences between top and mid-tier players, those differences narrow, are narrower. Like Mithril Code was 28 percentage points. Then you have like a bunch of cards at 20 percentage points uh, higher picked by the uh, bottom tier players. And then the, like, the minimum is like 16 to 14, uh, the long tail from Fangor to Storm of Saruman. When we look at the top versus mid players, the biggest difference is like 12 percentage points. And then, um, and then you go uh, round 10 and then you end up at 7.5 percentage points difference. So these are smaller differences, which shows you that those preferences probably are a part of the difference in the win rate. But we still have the same collection of cards. We still have Mithril Code, we still have Elrond, uh, we have Gandalf, uh, we have uh, we have Glamdring, we have Legolas, Smeagol Helpful Guide, Aragorn, um, One Ring to Rule Them All, uh, uh, and, and there are a bunch of other things, but all of them are also rares and, and, and mythics. So I think that this is like one tendency of people that begin to play the game and begin to play the uh, limited. They are, they are reading what what um, wizards print on the card. So um, Elrond, rare. Well, it must be busted then, it's a rare. Mithril Coat, that's a rare equipment, must be busted. Same with Glamdring. And they are not necessarily good cards that have rares and limited. Um, especially in this set, the bunch of rares are not that great. Uh, or force you to do um, deck choices that you rather not take, especially early. Like, you know, Shallop is definitely a good card. It's just that if you pick it, you probably either need to splash it, and then you need to dedicate part of your draft to splashing it, or you need to play green. And 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 you know, uh, the success of the top player says, well, you probably don't want to play green. You want to play black, and you want to play red. And Shallop only fulfills half of those criteria. Um, so yeah, um, I think that there is this tendency of trying to play rares. It might be honestly has something to do with rare drafting and and. Uh, and you know the top players being tryhards, they will go. Well, I'm gonna pick that good uncommon over that rare because whatever. And especially when you play 100 drafts in a format, yes, you're gonna get that rare sooner or later from the packs you open. So uh, maybe there is a word, no worries there. And if you don't, then you can just always craft it from your 700 wild cards that you accumulated over time. Um, okay. Um, so yeah, generally. Top players are not that keen on, on middle ra rares that, that require you to make uh, those kind of weird uh, deck building choices. And the biggest differences between mid and bottom tier players, well, we start with the one ring, Saruman, Mithril Code, we still get the some, same collection of Gandalf, Aragorn, Samwise. So you can see that this is a process of weaning off that uh, uh, land uh, rare drafting kind of uh, thing. Uh, because we see the same cards that mid players were um, drafting more aggressively than the top players. We see that bottom players draft more aggressively than the mid players. So we will see that lots of those cards are going to be like a, a, a process um, of, of, of learning that, you know, that, that rare is probably just not good enough. I'd rather pick a common uncommon. Um, yeah, too many of those cards are the same. So I'm just not gonna need, look, look at them in, in, in more detail. So for the differences in the play rate, um, these will not be that many rares. Uh, these are the differences between when you pick a card, how often do you put them in your deck? And obviously if you pick those rares, most of the time people will try to put them in your deck as well. So uh, we won't see many of those uh, in, the, in this part. But what we see is, uh, is, a bunch of, um, is a bunch of 
solid commons that uh, top players put in their deck more frequently when they pick them and uh, bottom tier players don't put them. And again, there can be two reasons. One reason might be that um, they don't evaluate a particular card highly enough. So they draft them, but then they don't put them in their deck even though they are playing the colors. And that's the problem of card evaluation. Uh, but the other problem might be that they pick those cards, but later don't play those colors. And of course, I can't tell you which one is which, but I can surely guess that in case of Torment of Gollum, it's probably a combination of both in, 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 in pretty um, even, uh, even situation. But when we look at, at a card like Baradur, um, it's probably because the uh, player was pushed out of a particular color combination. So when we look at those, Torment of Gollum, um, top players put it 18 percentage points more frequently uh, than uh, than the bottom players. And I can actually try to maybe look at, um, to give you like the impression of of, um, of how often, of, of, of what do those numbers mean? Uh, I just need to go through my magic Excel sheet and, and, and sort it properly. Top play rate, uh, where is it? Okay. So, Torment um, of Gollum, um, bottom tier players will play it roughly 60% of the time when they draft it. Uh, top players, 79% of the time. Uh, so that's basically the, the, the difference. Um, so at least part of it must be being pushed out of the colors. And I would love to make that analysis when the draft data gets out. It's not gonna be easy. When you look at the Shellob's Ambush, 46% um, uh, play rate when it's picked by the uh, bottom tier players and 61% by the top players. Here, I think that a lot of it is that uh, Shallop's Ambush is gonna be cut even from the uh, black decks uh, yeah, by, the, by the lower win rate players. Um, and which other cards do we have on that list? Uh, we have Sam's Desperate Rescue, another black card that, um, um, that I think maybe doesn't appeal because like one mana to get something out of your graveyard doesn't seem super good but Tempted by the Ring is a very important part. We have a bunch, we, we have a couple of rares. We have Flowering of the White Tree, Moria Marauder, and um, uh, and Frodo Sauron's Bane. Another card that I think is like really, um, the whole archetype of, of, of blue-red spells is much more friendly towards good players, which also makes you think uh, about um, it's a difficult archetype to play, therefore it's played more by the top players, therefore it might have an elevated win rate because of the, uh, the group of players that plays it. Um, we have Rentes Rohirrim, we have Isolation at Orthanc, the four mana, um, uh, the four mana put something second from the top uh, of the library uh, of the owner. And that type of card is always uh, played more by the top players. Uh, in any iteration that I've seen, that card was always on the uh, part of the biggest difference between top and bottom play, uh, tier players um, as, uh, as um, top players play it more, basically. Uh, Quarrel's End, that's another card that gets probably cut from many uh, decks of the uh, lower winner players. And uh, Mordor Master, these are very similar. So sort of like you pay two, three mana, you get a one, one, but you also get some card draw slash selection. And, you know, top players love drawing cards. Um, um, and um, yeah, uh, and, 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 and bottom tier players probably see it as like, Oh, it's just a one-one with uh, for two mana. That doesn't seem good. And in the other direction, which cards are beloved by the bottom tier players and and not so much by the top tier players? 
Entish Restoration. I think that this card has like a lot of uh, appeal to um, uh, to a less experienced player to say, well, I, I, can, I can ramp my mana. And that's very often uh, ramping to nothing and, and, and ending up with like five color soups that um, are not going to work. That's not to say that uh, you can't draft those decks. It's just that those decks are super hard to get uh, and super hard to play and super hard to identify where you should be in that type of deck. And this is something that you learn over, over time. And uh, the bottom tier players are going to disproportionately uh, lose more games when they try to play those strategies. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't because, you know, you won't learn if you don't try, but they should know that uh, by uh, subscribing to the five-color strategy, they're probably throwing away win rate there. Um, Nimrod the Watcher does the Scry 2-1. Again, not played so much by the top players. And again, probably exacerbating the uh, scale of the problem with green-blue because it's a appealing archetype for the uh, lower winner players. And at the same time, uh, very not appealing for top winner players because they like to win and that archetype doesn't win. And because of that, probably the difference between Rakdos win rate and the Simic win rate when you want to normalize for all the confounding factors, that, that difference would be smaller than uh, what currently is 11, 12 percentage points. Not by much, but by some. It will be not 12, but maybe 10 because of how much more data you get from uh, bottom tier players on that archetype and how much less data you get from top tier players on that archetype. Um, what else do we have here? Greyhaven's Navigator, that's the same problem. It's in the Scry deck. Uh, Knights of Dol Amroth, uh, that's in the Draw 2 deck, which also is not something that really exists. Shire Terrace. Uh, that's the version of Evolving Wilds for this format. And um, well, clearly it's not as good as um, Evolving Wilds. And definitely it's like, you know, I would play it maybe if I splash for Sauron or something like that, or splash for Shallop in my black, white deck or something. Uh, but I won't put it in my two-color decks and I, I am playing Evolving Wilds quite a lot in my two-color decks if I don't have like many one-drops. So I think that people still evaluate as if it was Evolving Wilds when it's not and put it in the decks. Um, that they shouldn't be. Uh, and I would assume that also top players speculate on picking it because they like to have that option when they, uh, you know, like pack one, you see a late Shire Terrace, you pick it just because it keeps you open if you open a bomb in like uh, pack twos and three. Uh, but then of course they never go into the deck and in case of bottom tier players will sometimes go in the deck. And and, and that that's, you know, those small differences that, that, make, um, that make a difference between tiers. Um, if Trebuchet is there, then clearly Mirkwood Bats is also there. Um, uh, two cards that you know should be played. I'm 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 getting closer and closer to saying that they shouldn't be played at all. But I mean, obviously, there will be some decks where m both Mordor Trebuchet and Mirkwood Bats are going to be excellent, and probably it's going to be the same type of deck. Probably not the ones with Amas, but maybe like Black Red or Black White with um, Generation of the One One Humans and 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 um, and maybe some food and stuff. Uh, well, we have Guai here, the Windlord. That's probably just um, because it's not that great color combination. It's not going to get played. Glorfindel, that's also not, not an impressive card. Captain of Umbar, the uh, three mana 2-3 that can loot for some mana. Uh, it's just not on rate. We have Surrounded by the Orcs again. The Amas 3 mill something. Uh, and Galadrim Guide. All those cards are just like very meh. And I just will rather splash something than to play them in my deck. But uh, the bottom tier players will just put them. And that's another thing that I observed in uh, in paper that uh, beginner players very often end up with those like 
17th to 23rd cards in their decks are close to unplayable. And that's a mixture of, in my opinion, at least that's a mixture of bad card evaluation, and but also of uh, bad draft navigation when you're sort of forced to play those cards. And I can't tell from this data which one it is, but I think that um, in, in, in the case of uh, things like um, surrounded by orcs, it might be card evaluation. Uh, but in terms of like cards like Captain of Amber, it might be sort of necessity of playing those cards because you just don't get enough. Um, um, you don't get enough playables for your deck because you did some evaluation errors maybe and, and maybe you also turtle in the draft too much and try to find that lane. But because you're not like super experienced, you didn't do it for decades uh, every day um, and think about it every mo waking moment of your life because of that you're obviously not going to be as good at navigating as someone who does and there's absolutely no shame in that but i mean this is the uh this is the moment to you know realize that okay i have i have i have an issue with draft navigation and i'm i'm not doing any coaching but i'm sometimes um chatting with um uh, with uh, players in my lgs that have that problem that they have really good basic deck of 17 cards that is like strong, coher coherent and, and, and everything. And then I look at like last six cards and it's just like at nothing in there. And then I, I look through their uh, sideboard and there's like eight solid cards in another color that just can't make a deck either way or other, but they were picked in there. And because of that, there was just not enough uh, picks to, uh, to make a cohesive deck. So, you know, I'm not saying that you should like marry to your first pick, but uh, there is a good reason why 80% uh, of the time the first pick does end up in your deck. Yeah, they are they are they are cards that are played more frequently by the bottom tier. Yeah. All right. When that ends, the play rate outliers. I didn't do them for the other ones because I thought it would be just never-ending list of cards. So I have more cards, but uh, this time we're looking at the game in hand win rate. Um, so I looked at the cards that are disproportionately higher or lower win rate um, uh, between top and bottom players. Um, and that's just something to think, like, why are those cards there? Um, so the difference between top and uh, bottom tiers is roughly 10 percentage points. So if one card has a 20 percentage point um, game and win rate difference, like uh, Moria Marauder has, that means that there is something about that card that requires extra skill in playing this card. And I'm not going to tell you which skill it is, but I just want you to realize that some of those cards are just going to be slightly trickier to play. It might be that um, top players just play the card in an excellent fashion, and it might be um, that um, uh, bottom players play this card really badly because it's like has some kind of a natural trap. Um, and which cards do we have? Moria Marauder is the one-one double striker when uh, when orc and or goblin. I hope uh, deals combat damage to an opponent. Uh, you may uh, you exile the top card of the library. You may pay it till the end of turn. And that's a game in hand uh, win rate difference between uh, top players and bottom players. So that's in percentage points. Um, so I think Moria Marauder requires you to design your attacks in such a way that you both can connect and at the same time that you still have mana left to cast whatever whatever you revealed. And there will be small edges with that, um, uh, like whether you play the land too soon or and, and, and waste a draw step. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, there's a lot to think about that card. And um, I think that this one is particularly prone to uh, gameplay uh, kind of uh, prowess. Same goes for Bath Song, um, and that's the saga that uh, makes you draw to discard twice, and then you can shuffle cards in your library, 
and you get some mana and then you can uh, spend that mana on, on stuff. The problem with this card is that, especially in the last chapter, to shuffle or not to shuffle is a difficult decision. And um, and maybe beginner players will tend to err on the side of uh, always shuffling everything or, or shuffling nothing. Um, and yeah, every time you have cards with that much uh, choice, it will very much favor the top players. Like I played against a, uh, I played against a um, white or blue red uh, spells deck, but not sort of aggressive, but a very controlling one. And it was like a never ending game. And then they played this bath song and uh, filtered through basically almost end of their library. And then chapter three hit and they shuffled nothing. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm dead. I was at 27 life at that time. Uh, and I had some board and I just realized at that moment, I'm dead. They didn't shuffle anything because of course, for me, it means that's a good player. Um, we had a chat later and then they were very friendly about beating uh, the living life out of me. That means that they want to keep uh, spells in their graveyard, which means that they have Gandalf Sanction or two. And it turns out that the next turn, they just Gandalf Sanction, the one, one Gandalf Sanction, the another one, one. And I was uh, all of a sudden from 27, I was at uh, minus two. So yeah, um, that was an example of an excellent play. Um, but maybe a less experienced player would go for the temptation of, uh, of, of shuffling some stuff and, um, um, and they will be just short of, um, uh, of killing me because of that. Um, then you have Flame of Honor. Uh, that's another card that offers you choice. And again, cards that offer choice are the cards that are going to promote top players because they just make better choices because of experience and how much they play with uh, stuff. Samwise, again, another card that offers choice when to play it. And the same goes with Lobelia Sackville Baggins. Two creatures with haste that uh, require something to die to get an extra effect, but also are perfectly playable as an ambush or as just play it at the end of the turn and slam with it next turn. And that choice, again, is proving to be promoting good players. Uh, Rangers of Ethelion, that might be the case of protecting them uh, after you cast them because they steal something. And um, if they don't die, they, you are in a good position because... Uh, 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 you keep their creature um, and maybe you want to force quickly to trade off that creature that you stole so that you will not cry after they kill the rangers of Ethelion because they did their job. So all those things are going to be um, uh, quite difficult and finicky in terms of playing around stuff and knowing what to play around. And I think that, that again, that, that boosts the, the win rate. Uh, Pelargir uh, Survivor, Birthday Escape, Treason of Isengard, Fire Inscription, Arwen's Gift, and Gandalf, Friend of the Shire. And these are sort of all elements of um, some sort of blue spells deck. Maybe Gandalf is playable in multiple uh, shells, but it can be really good in those um, birthday escape decks when you can actually um, get some extra ring bearers, draw some extra cards out of your stuff. All this package is, is sort of like um, the package that you uh, want to have in spells decks, which means, again, that I think that the top players play those spells decks much better. Because spells is not a common strategy. Even if you played uh, limited for you know several formats, um, you might have focused on playing creature decks, and rightfully so, because as a beginner, you should probably focus on those kind of aggressive uh, creature strategies because they offer you the best chance of winning, and you can catch up with other stuff once you master the aggro. Uh, and because of that, I think that um, bottom tier players do slightly worse in uh, 
in um, in those spell matters decks because they require good sequencing of spell planning ahead by a couple of turns, um, and that's not an easy part of the game. Um, when we look at the lowest differences between the top and the bottom players, um, Aragorn and uh, Celeborn for some reason have almost no difference between uh, top players and bottom players. I mean, there is a reason. Aragorn is just not good in the hands of the top players, but bottom players are actually doing fine with it for some reason. Um, they win. They win more with them with Aragorn than uh, uh, than with most cards. And this might be due to small sample size, really. Uh, so I'm not going to put too much uh, thought about it. Uh, what cards are in the same gist? Uh, friendly Rivalry is another card that just does okay in, in, in the hands of the uh, bottom players, not so great in the hands of top players. What I'm more interested in in, in this um, graph is cards like Shadowfax, Lord of the Forces, cards that do well with good players, but also do well with the bottom tier players. Then that to me means that it's a relatively easy and yet powerful card. And when you're in the beginner tier, you want to uh, play those type of cards. And you have like Book of Mazarbul or uh, that is in similar gist, a good card that also is good when you're a beginner player because it sort of puts you on rails what to do. It, it doesn't require too many choices and, um, and you can just win. Again, Eowyn, Fearless Knight, Eomer, Marshall, Rohan. Those kind of cards uh, do work pretty well with the bottom tier players, even though, I mean, not even though, and they do pretty well with um, with the top players, but maybe not as the difference is not as big. And uh, one card that is interesting on that list is Reprieve. Uh, this is a two mana, put a spell that an opponent casts back into their hand, draw a card. And I was expecting that this is going to be a finicky card that will promote the top players, but actually the difference is not so big. So um, interesting to see Reprieve on that list. Uh, differences between top and mid players. The biggest one is Prince Imrahil de Fer. Uh, that's the two mana, two, two. Um, when you draw a second card each turn, you get a one, one. I guess that the uh, A, it's going to be played in by the top players in conjunction with maybe Faramir or that you have to have really good reason to play white, blue, or is it going to be splashed uh, in, in some colors where it's easy to splash? Um, and also I'm pretty sure that top players, when they play Imrahil, they will try to um, accrue the one one instantly, uh, and that way, uh, you know, they always pay for a decent deal of two two and a one one, rather than play paying for a two two and then not being able to uh, capitalize for several turns and then it dying to something. Uh, another card that I wanted to uh, look at is Breaking of the Fellowship. That's the two mana target creature an opponent controls deals damage to uh, another target um, creature that an opponent controls and the ring tempts you. Um, this card has pretty poor win rate in uh, mid-tier and very bad win rate in, in bottom tier, but quite a high win rate in top tier players. Um, so I think that they can utilize the, um, the being tempted by the ring more efficiently. And that's, that's the reason why this card is um, uh, so high in, in their hands. And also they will be able to plan around uh, how to use the uh, breaking of the fellowship um, most efficiently. My favorite card to um, deal with uh, with this card uh, is Gothmog. Was it Gothmog? I think so. Um, the three three that amasses one, and your token creatures get death touch because you can just kill it with your death touching token, 
and then the token stops being having that touch, which is which is a lovely thing to do. Um, what else do we have here that is interesting? Um, again, we have Pelargir Survivor. Uh, that's the um, uh, spells mana dork. And we have hit lane knots, and I think excellent card in this format that um, uh, that does require some good skills on how to play it, because uh, it tops a creature, and you draw a card. When to use it, when not to use it, uh, to maximize the effect is uh, is an interesting one. Um, in terms of the win rate difference in advantage of uh, the mid tier players, there is one really big outlier, and that's you cannot pass. Um, card has a pretty bad win rate in top players, uh, but I think that in that case it's due to it ending up in weird multicolor legend-based concoctions that just don't have a good win rate, while uh, mid players are just going to play it in sort of like more streamlined deck that has uh, multiple uh, uh, multiple legends just happens in the same color. Uh, what other interesting cards? Entry frustration we talked about. Um, that was. Lots of those cards are just really, really, um, really good um, cards on raid. We have uh, Elmer, Marshall of Rohan. We have Delighted Halfling. It's hard to go wrong with those cards, you know? Uh, and we have Faramir, Prince of Ethelion. That's another one that is um, uh, a good card, but it also does good for the uh, mid-tier because the, the sheer power level of the card is insane. Um, and the differences between middle-tier um, players and the bottom players we again see the Moria Marauder. So it seems Moria Marauder is particularly when you're a beginner, you have problems playing with that card. When you're in the mid tier, you're fine playing it. So it's not like uh, the most advanced card on the planet, but um, uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, I have a question from chat. Does many parting suggest top players are better at splashing? Um, top players are are better at splashing, uh, but uh, that data doesn't, doesn't necessarily uh, suggest it. Um, I did look, however, on the on the stats on on, on splashing, and um, yeah, uh, top players are just uh, slightly better in in, in how how they. Uh, I'm trying to find that data very very hastily in in in, uh, in my 17 lands. Uh, so mid tier players have a 57 and a half percent win rate in two color decks, with 62 percent. Uh, for um, two-color decks uh, by the top players. So that's five percentage points, roughly, uh, difference, 4.8. And in two-color decks with a splash, it's 52.2 versus 57.5. So the difference is really small. It's like 4.8 versus 5.5 uh, difference between two-color and, uh, two and splash. So they are better than splashing, but not by much. Um, 3.4. Yeah, that's basically the answer to your question. Um, Arstal, if you go back after after this, I had a whole collection of slides that were oh well, that was showing. I, I, I'm actually go uh, after I'm finished in a second. I might go back to those slides to show you what exactly uh, I, I told about land cycles because I had a whole section about it. Uh, right. Uh, so the difference between mid and bottom. Um, uh, Moria Murder again. Delighted Halfling, another card that is sort of like mid skill level card and it does very well for mid players, but really not so well for the uh, for the bottom. Um, uh, Lobelia Sackville Baggins that was also on the previous list. Uh, we have Bag and Porter. Um, 
I don't know what what to do from it. But Path Song is another thing that is a sort of mid um, mid mid skill level card, and we see the bunch of the same things: Flame of Honor, um, uh, Rangers of Ethelian. Um, uh, all those cards are uh, mid players can do well with those cards, while the bottom tier players can't. So that's the sort of level up that you are going to have to experience. Um, and the cards that do pretty decently uh, with bottom tier players compared to uh, mid tier players, we have um, friendly rivalry again. The bottom tier players actually do better with that card than top tier players. Uh, then we have like a bunch of really strong bombs like Shellop, um, um, Aragorn Comp. Company leader, these cards do more or less the same in the hands of the mid and bottom tier players. Um, Faramir, uh, uh, Horn of Gondor, all those cards are close between those two tiers. And that's just strictly on the power level of those cards. And again, Reprieve, for some reason, does really, really well in the bottom tier uh, uh, level. And I have no explanation for that. But I definitely do know that it's uh, this ability, the, the, this, this thing is there. But okay, I'm drained. It's half past midnight. Uh, so I'm going to thank the 17 Lands team, Viral Misnomer, Hululu, Grant, ZTM, um, for you know generating this amazing resource that we all can use. I'd like to thank Fake Jake Brown uh, for helping me with releasing this as a podcast. Um, once we're talking about the podcast, I would like to thank Asesku and Manajanki for the music that we're using uh, in the podcast. And of course, I'd like to thank mtgazone.com for uh, sponsoring me. And I would like to thank my patrons and um, especially Sam, who is a new patron. And if you would like to receive such thanks, then the Patreon is there. Just click it. Uh, it's very easy. But with that, I'll see you next week when we hopefully talk about some other interesting topics linked to Lord of the Rings. See you next week. Bye.